Hi, and welcome to the KC Praxis Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Jake McGregor. All right. Good morning, my friends. Welcome to the Kingdom Community Podcast episode, whatever episode this is. Um, we've been doing it for a couple of years. <laughs> That's what I know. Um, all right. This morning's uh KC Podcast is brought to you unofficially by Inspire Coffee, their dark roast, the dream roast, I believe it is. Um, that is my liquid of choice this morning. Man, Inspire Coffee, Lance and his family, if you guys listen to this, this is, you guys did this right, right? Like I love, uh, coffee houses are my favorite thing, but you got to put the coffee first, right? Atmosphere is great. Your yummy scones are fine, but do the coffee right. <laughs> Inspire has done their coffee right. Highly recommended. There you go. Free advertising for what it's worth. <laughs> All right, you guys, we are in the book of Acts in chapter 15. Um, it's really been kind of a Bible study for all intents and purposes uh, that we've been doing as a family through the second part of the story of Acts. Um, and Acts is super important to us as we've been sharing as a community because we really see ourselves, as all churches should, um, as the inheritors of this beautiful, um, exciting, like explosive movement of the kingdom of God in the first century. What if we were to live like that again? What if we were to believe uh, that the Holy Spirit um, is on the move in the same way? Uh, because uh, here's a little secret for you. God is on the move in the same way, right? He is absolutely on the move, loving, restoring, redeeming, um, bringing hope to those who need it most. That is all happening, right? The kingdom of God has arrived in this world uh, and we are its heralds. We are the ones who announce that both through our, our demonstration first, I should say, through the way we demonstrate the kingdom uh, and then through our announcement that this is the coming of the kingdom of God. This is the work and the restorative work of Jesus Christ. Um, so we're studying the book of Acts and we're looking at the different things um, that happened and, and seeing what we can glean and learn uh, from it. So last week, we looked at this pivotal section where Paul and several others began to share the good news with the Gentiles, right? So sharing the story of God with people completely outside the religion and who are unfamiliar with that story, right? Unfamiliar with the proper traditions, destined to be at least messy, right? When they come into the church. Because remember, Jesus has arrived, right? The ancient Jewish belief was that the king would come back and in Acts, it happens. The Jews understood that, right? The Gentiles needed to be brought along. They needed to understand that the king has returned, the one true king, right? The Messiah has ascended to the throne. This is what's happening. Do you want in, right? So that's the invitation to the Gentiles, right? So there's an invitation in the book of Acts to both groups, religious and unreligious, Jews and Gentiles. And again, the invitation to the Jews is take this good news and go live it. You know the story, right? It's all come true, all our prophecies. You are my people. You know my word. You've been learning about me from the scriptures from the time you were young. The story still belongs to you. Now go and tell it. Tell everyone that I am on the move, God says, right? Invite them in. Um, but that has been increasingly hard for the Jewish people to stomach because, dude, you're bringing in those Gentiles though, <laughs> right? This is a group of people that we, if we're Jews, have been taught by our society, 
right? If you're a first century Jew, you've been taught by your society, um, by your grandparents and your grandparents' grandparents, that these people are not just different from you, but the way they live and the things they believe and the things they've done are actually not right, right? They smell weird, these Gentiles, and they eat weird things. They're Romans, and we hate Romans for good reason, right? The Romans oppressed the Jews for years, or they're Greeks. They've lived their entire lives in pursuit of knowledge that fundamentally lacks anything about the truth or God, right? Or they're Epicureans who drink too much and sleep around, or that, you, you, get the, you get the point, right? They're a bunch of liberals. They have different political views from us. They're secular. They do things and say things and believe things that are incompatible with our morality, those Gentiles. So you can start to see what's actually at stake here, right? And hopefully it starts to relate to where we're at. These are different group of peoples who view the world, have fundamentally different worldviews. And so this entire generation of Jews um, is being confronted with this, right? Suddenly through a series of miracles and beyond contestation acts of the Holy Spirit, and then actually in direct verbal language to Paul, God is saying, I am now inviting these people in, these others are now invited to participate and be a part of my family. Um, and this entire generation of Jews is confronted with the reality that some of the things that they believe, the way they've been taught to view the world, right? Jesus coming has actually turned all of that upside down. Everything has changed and they need to change too. This is the background to Acts chapter 15. The stakes, like we said, are very high. Um, it's like these religious people are standing there and watching from the outside as miracle after miracle happens among these Gentiles, as God's beautiful plans unfold among these crazy people and people are healed and they're being set free and addiction is being broken and, 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 and it's just beautiful, right? And the question they're asking themselves is this is very different from everything we've been taught. Do I remain on the outside and judge it, right? It's unfamiliar to me. Do I judge it as something that's wrong? Or do I join in, right? Do I stand back and make fun of these people, <laughs> right? Or do I take my shirt off and just start partying with them? Do I jump into the river of God's grace with these crazy people? Or do I complain about how dangerous it is in those currents? Um, man, this is a story, isn't it? Uh, and it all builds and it builds to this culminating moment in Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 is what is known as the Jerusalem Council, where all the leaders of the early church, disciples who had been with Jesus, right, years before, people like Paul and Barnabas, who are now the missionaries that are sent, uh, they're all here. And they're basically going to decide, like, what is God doing, right? It's so new. How do we respond to it? What do we do? So this is huge, right? Acts chapter 15 is a huge moment. So all that is the context. Context is set. Uh, if you will open up your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 15, uh, hit pause if you need to, get a Bible, uh, scroll over on your phone, whatever you need to do, Acts chapter 15. It's a long section of scripture and I want you to follow along with me, okay? This is Acts 15, one. It says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem. So the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. 
When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers belonged to the, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, right, this is a conference, much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He's referring back to Acts chapter 11 if you want to go check, right? A dream that he had and an amazing encounter, okay? God, this is verse 8, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. In other words, something happened to them and we can't deny it, okay? He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Okay, lot there. Take a drink of coffee if you need to. Ah. <laughs> so the main issue here as they all come together in Jerusalem is apparently this thing called circumcision, okay? And uh, that's an odd one to do a podcast on. I'm not super sure you've ever heard a podcast. Matter of fact, I can confidently say you've never heard a podcast or a sermon preached on circumcision, right? But this is kingdom community. We go there. <laughs> So these guys, Paul and Barnabas, have been taking the gospel to the Gentiles, right? Inviting them again into the story of what God is doing in this world. Signs and wonders are taking place, things that cannot be argued. But then along behind Paul and Barnabas, in every city they go into is this group of Jewish religious folks saying, no, 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 no. They need to now act like us and follow our rules and look like us in order to be a part of our family. In other words, they need to follow the Torah, the Torah is the law of Moses, right? The way of living that God had given them from way back when, right? And now these people need to fully live that law too, is basically what they're saying. And it all seems to coalesce around this issue of circumcision. Uh, verse five, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law, the Torah of Moses. And so Peter, who had followed Jesus himself, somebody who was actually discipled by Jesus, he answers their ultimatum. It's important, okay? He says, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? It's fascinating. When he says yoke, okay, a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. The word yoke is important, okay? That refers not to the yellow part of the egg, but to this big circular apparatus that you would see in olden days put on an oxen, right? In some places still in the world today, you put a yoke on an animal, a beast of burden, so that they can tow and plow until your field, right? So a yoke uh, is to a first century Jewish person something that is put on you. Okay, it's a way of saying a, an interpretation of the scriptures, right? Our way of understanding what we now need to do and how we now need to live, right? Um, our way of understanding what all these ancient rules and laws actually mean to us, right? The yoke that we put on. 
So Pharisees and rabbis would each have a particular way of understanding the Torah, and they would call that their yoke. And the followers of these rabbis, these teachers, would say, I would have taken on the yoke of my teacher, my rabbi. Okay, This rabbi has this yoke. That rabbi has that yoke. They're all slightly different. right? But I am learning this rabbi's way of understanding the Torah. I am living under this rabbi's yoke. Does that make sense? So certain respected rabbis' yokes would be called heavy. Like, whoa, that dude's way of doing things. Ah, he's, it's heavy, right? That's heavy, man, <laughs> right? They're, and, and you would be more respected, basically, the heavier you, your yoke was as a rabbi. Um, their rules and interpretations would get enormously complex. They would go from like the basic things, from the day we worship on, right, and the songs that we sing, all the way out to what you can and cannot eat, the days you can and cannot work, right, the way you need to care and feed for your animals, how to make a blanket, right? All of it was put under these yokes. Um, by the first century, these yokes had become heavy right? The religious rules and regulations had become so complex and legalistic that it seemed sometimes impossible to bear those yokes, those heavy yokes. But then in places like Matthew chapter 11, Jesus comes along and he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light, which just turns everything on its head. His teachings, Jesus' teachings in a lot of ways, was him offering a new yoke, right? Uh, the Sermon on the Mount especially, uh, this is uh, Matthew 5 through 7, that, that especially is a new way of understanding the Torah, right? It is a new interpretation of the law, understanding God and his word, and that understanding was not heavy but light, right? Jesus' way doesn't focus on the rules themselves, but focuses on God's reason for giving us those rules. You have heard it said, Jesus would say, that you're not supposed to get a divorce, but I tell you, it's about what's going on in this man's heart. It's about the fact that he even would look at another woman in a certain way. God is concerned with the transformation of hearts, right? God wants our hearts to actually change within us. He wants reconciliation between people, freedom from bondage, love for neighbor, compassion and grace for those who are oppressing us. Because this God has always been in the business of setting people free. Because the life of God isn't meant to be heavy. It's a way of living freely and lightly, right? So Jesus brings this new light yoke. But that's about, it's, it's in some ways, it's so much deeper. It transforms our hearts. So, that brings us to circumcision, okay? When the Pharisaic Christians say that people must be circumcised according to the law of Moses, right? This is an ancient practice that they would do that is done in many places in our world still today. Um, it is something that makes people, um, understandably, raise an eyebrow uh, sometimes. Uh, but the interesting thing about circumcision, okay, is that it's not actually a part of the legal codes in the Torah, in the law. If you go back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where the, the law parts is, you will never find a law where God says, you must be circumcised in order to be my people, right? You don't find it in the actual law. Where you actually find circumcision is way earlier in the story, before the law was even given in Genesis 17. In that place, and this is important, write this down. In Genesis 17, when circumcision is given, it is, it is a part of God's calling of Abraham, a man named Abraham and his family. They were told to be circumcised, and that was a way of setting them apart as, as, as God's special family. So it wasn't so much a command as it was a symbol, right, of the fact that God has invited these people to be his people, right? These people are the family 
of God. They are Abraham's family, and they will have this symbol that will that will symbolize uh, that fact. So Peter, okay, comes along, and he's learned from Jesus, and he understands, learns from that light yoke. It's about heart change, right? He understands all these things. He understood that circumcision was never meant to be a law to be enforced. It was a symbol of the fact that God had made a covenant with his people, and that by doing that, God had made them his family, right? So to a Jew, circumcision is about becoming a part of the family of God. So it's understandable, these people, you need to do this in order to be a part of our family, okay? But it's about family, right? It's not about following a rule. Remember that. So notice what Peter says. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So God knows the heart. God doesn't discriminate. God has purified these people, people's hearts. They have God's spirit, okay? By God's grace, both they and we have been saved. In other words, Do we trust what God is doing in these people's lives? Do we trust God enough to bring them closer to himself, right? God has given us a new symbol. It is the movement of the Holy Spirit, which we are not in control of, right? So do we trust that God is doing it different now, right? Is it our responsibility to put our old yokes on these people? Or are we simply supposed to rejoice in the new thing that God is doing and not overthink it? Okay, now you have several things going on at this point, right? You have the yoke of Jesus, free and light, heart of God. You have circumcision, which is a sign of the family of God. And you have Peter now who is urging these people to see these new Gentiles as a part of the family and to trust what God is up to. Can we allow for the new thing God is doing here? Can we trust what he's doing? That brings us to the pivot point, to this man, James. Okay, James is the leader of the Jerusalem Council. Okay, he is the one who sits at the head of the table. He's the sage. He's the one everyone looks up to and trusts. This is what James has to say. When they finished, this is Acts 15, 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this. As it is written, whenever you see as it is written, okay, pause right there. When you see it as as it is written, he's about to quote the law. He's about to quote the Jewish scriptures, okay? Um, Actually, he's not quoting the law, he's quoting the histories, but he's about to quote scriptures that they would have known, okay? Uh, Acts 15, 16. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, from the meat meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, If you're paying attention here, you're going, wait a minute, right? Why would James say this? Why would he say it this way? Why? If the whole goal was to take on a new yoke, one that's easy and light, why would James now give them a bunch of other rules that they actually have to follow, okay? If you're confused, there's a point to that, okay? Above all, we have to remember that Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he's behind these words as well. Luke is like a member of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, right? He is brilliant and he does these things on purpose. So we assume that James said a lot of things, but Luke gives us this particular part of his speech. Why? 
First of all, notice the quote in 16 again. Okay, James is quoting the Old Testament. He says, the reason we're changing things, right, is because we expected it to happen. As it is written, we knew God would do this, right? As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Okay? So for the next couple minutes, I'm going to go Bible nerd on everyone listening. And I apologize, but not really, because I think it's really important, okay? Bear with me. Um, It all has a point. On the surface, if you have a Bible open, a paper Bible, and you have margins in that Bible, it's going to tell you that this is a quote that James is quoting from Amos 9. Amos 9 is a prophecy of what will come about after the judgment of Israel, okay? So after the Babylonians and Assyrians have come through and done their worst to Israel, God is saying to these ancient people, I will restore the tent of David. In its original context, Amos is talking about restoring the Davidic kingship, right? So David's broken line, the line of kings will be restored. This is a prophecy about the restoration of the king. In the book of Acts, that's all been happening, right? The book of Acts begins with David's heir, Jesus, ascending to the throne, all right? So that prophecy is being fulfilled. But there are a couple of interesting features to the text here that you have to look at. First of all, biblical scholars have noted that in verse 15, James doesn't say the words of the prophets singular, okay? He says the words of the prophets, plural. So James is not quoting one single source here, but a whole grouping of sources, okay? It's not just Amos 9. Uh, The preposition after this, where it says, after this, I will return, that is actually textually identical to Hosea 3, which is about the restoration of Israel as well, but is also about how God will rebuild the temple at that time. Okay, so now I have the restoration of the king and the rebuilding of the temple. Then the verb return, okay, which is anastrepso, is actually found in Jeremiah 12, 15. Jeremiah 12, 15 is also about the restoration of Israel, but it's specifically about the Gentiles being built in the midst of Israel. So now we have the Gentiles. Uh, At the end of the citation, where it says, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, the wording there is strikingly similar to Isaiah, uh, sorry, Isaiah 45, which refers to the nations, all nations drawing near to God, and again includes temple language. So James is not quoting one source. He is using a mishmash of quotes. It's like a theme that he's quoting from his scriptures, which is about kings and returns and temples being restored and peoples, all peoples coming to God. Remember the turning point of the first part of the book of Acts was God breaking free of the temple, right? So God is now out in the midst of the people. His word is going out to the Gentiles. And now James is quoting a string of prophecies that talk about this time when the king will be back on the throne, his people will be restored, all nations will hear, and at that time a new temple will be built where all of mankind, Gentiles and Jews, will be built together with God in their midst. God has broken free of the old temple, but now God is building a new kind of temple, one in which Gentiles and Jews will function together as the people of God. James is saying this was all foretold, right? And again, the whole thrust of what's been happening in the book of Acts is signs and wonders, right? Out there on the field with Paul and Barnabas and what Peter just said and what now James is saying, right? Is that the ultimate goal, the new thing that God is doing, he's drawing all people from all corners together as a reborn Israel functioning as a restored temple with a renewed identity and purpose of being a blessing to the whole world, right? When it was Abraham alone, 
right? He was given circumcision, and that was given to the Jews as a way to mark them out as a part of this family. But the prophets always spoke of a time when all nations would be built together. And so what James and Peter and Paul and Luke are telling us here is that God's desire for his new temple is Jews and Gentiles living together in community, right? All of these scriptures, the Torah, the prophets of old, they have been pointing us toward that. Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to be a part of this family because God loves them as Gentiles. He was always going to invite them in. Does that make sense? James is saying, our scriptures told us this would happen, that the community of God would be about people from all corners of the globe together in a new temple, a new kind of temple with new symbols, right? The biggest symbol of which is the Holy Spirit itself. And we will all be worshiping and advancing the kingdom together, right? We will all maintain what makes us unique, what makes us different, but we'll be drawn together in unity by the Spirit, which is now our symbol, right? That the Spirit of God in our midst. We're powerful with that. We're powerful in our diversity because the Spirit of God will use us differently, right? And then Paul's going to go on and write letters about how we all have different gifts and the Holy Spirit works through us all differently, This all happens here in Acts chapter 15, you guys. Now, if there's a tradition or a way of doing our religion that needs to change or go away altogether for that temple to be built, then by God, says James, we will see that temple built, right? We're not going to put circumcision on these people anymore. We're going to set that part aside. We need to set something down. But... Okay, that's not the end of the story. Because if it were, then all these Jewish people would just have egg on their faces, right? It'd be like Peter and James saying, yeah, all of the old religious stuff is just for old dummies, right? We're over all that old stuff, right? That's old tradition. We don't need any of it. We're moving on, right? Which would make a lot of, I think, you know, us millennials happy, right? We're abandoning all tradition. God is doing something new. We're just going to abandon all the old But that would be to ignore what God is saying in the text here, okay? James is using the prophets, first of all. He's speaking of David and the temple and Messiahship. So there's something deeply Jewish going on here. He's speaking in a very Jewish way to a very Jewish people. Um, He's not abandoning them. And that brings us to the next part of James's speech, right? The stuff, uh, the new rules, abstain from food polluted polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. Um... If they're just abandoning their old, if we're all just abandoning our old religion and our old Jewish identity, then why is it so important for James to include all these stipulations about what the Gentiles have to now avoid? And then why does he again, after all of this, affirm the teaching of the law of Moses? Why? And there's an interesting little tidbit for you, okay? Just to know. (laughs) The book of Acts is most likely being written sometime between AD 40 and AD 60. Um, In AD 70, the temple is destroyed because there is a massive and oppressive empire called Rome that has been expanding its borders. And Israel is occupied by these folks at the time Acts is written. Okay, During the time Acts is written, there are major major political and social realities going on. The Pharisees as a group were all about defining what makes us Jewish. They were trying to hang on to the thing that set them apart as God's people so that their people wouldn't be consumed into Roman paganism. So it's extremely important that we hold on to our identity, what makes us a family. We can't lose ourselves in the midst of this political reality. And so issues like circumcision and food laws, they're not just religious issues, right? They're issues of ethnic identity and heritage. 
They become rallying cries against the, 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 the empire that's oppressing us. If Jews and Gentiles are going to function together now as the community of the king, if that's really what God is doing, then they're going to need to love one another and understand one another and understand what, why it's so important to the Jews to maintain their identity, right? And so we're all now, if we're going to be at the same table together, we're all going to have to sacrifice something for one another. So when James says, instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Witherington is a scholar who notes that every single one of those stipulations is speaking against something that you would see typically in a pagan temple, okay? Uh, Sacrificing animals, sexual acts, idol worship. Those are things that happened in temples, just not the Jewish ones, right? So if everybody's going to move forward together, then we all of us need to be willing to make changes, which fundamental changes to how we do things, right? He's saying, if we're going to be God's people, all of us together, his renewed temple, we need to be able to share table fellowship together. And a Gentile cannot sit across from a Jew and eat something that was just sacrificed to a pagan goddess, right? It's it's offensive. You can't sit there and offend somebody sitting across from you and then be in relationship with them and build a new temple together, right? Or build a new kingdom together. It just doesn't work, right? That's going to ignore something fundamental to what makes us God's people together. So if we're all going to be together in this new kingdom, then we're all going to have to give something here. We're all going to have to set something down if we're going to pick something new and beautiful up. Because the goal here is God is doing something new, right? The goal here is he's bringing us together as one people, diverse and strong and beautiful, a picture of his good creation, right? Which is God's goal still today. He is pulling individuals, to me, in the midst of our society. So let's let's fast forward from, from, from the first century to our society right now, the things that we're dealing with, because I think the lessons apply. Um, <laughs> yeah, unless you're like hiding under a rock, um, you recognize that we are a divided people, and that includes Christians, people of faith. Um, if we are going to be about the work of God, if these ancient prophecies are still true, right? If God is building together a beautiful people, diverse and strong, and that is the way that the kingdom of God looks, and that's the way heaven is going to look, whether you want it to or not, right? And so we are a sign and a foretaste of what heaven looks like, right? We're building that here, Um we're going to have to be willing to set down some issues. We're going to have to be willing to set aside some stuff, right? Things that we have been taught from the very beginning um, is deeply important. Um, What needs to be set down in order for us to pick up this beautiful, brand new thing that God is doing, right? Trusting that God is big enough to change hearts in people, right? And so the person sitting across from me may be living an entirely different type of lifestyle than me, um, but I'm in pursuit of Jesus and I'm inviting them, come and pursue Jesus with me. He transforms lives. Uh, Can I trust that God, that the Holy Spirit can be given to this person across from me in equal measure and God can be in charge of the transformation of morals and um, anything else that I think needs to be changed. Whatever I think needs to be changed in this person, God probably has a better idea about that than me. Can I trust that? Sorry about the train. This is part of the 180. Um, 
A beautiful picture of this, I think, is what's been happening here at 180. I think I may have talked about this last week, actually. Um, at 180 on Wednesday nights, uh, we have a youth group. It's called The Kitchen Table. Um, and it's a lot of kids that have come out of church traditions. My kids would be some of those. It's also a lot of kids that have not come out at all of any sort of religious tradition. And initially, the, the, the Kingdom Community Youth Group was being run like a traditional youth group would. Everybody would come together. They'd play a game. Um, it'd be a silly game that would involve something gross inside of a burrito that we all have to eat and then decide what, whatever it is. You youth group stuff, right? But then we would all sit down and we would have a Bible study together. Uh, and what, to his credit, Doug Collins, who's um, and my wife Allie, who were kind of processing together some of the struggle with that, what they saw is that the kids at the 180 have no frame of reference for any of that language, right? And so they would show up and they would just feel, for part of it, it'd be super fun. This is my teen center. This is where I belong. This is my home, right? It's my sanctuary. Um, then we're playing games, so that's super fun. But now all of a sudden, we're talking about things and we're using language um, that I have no clue about. And so kids were kind of like, what do I do with that? And so the decision was made that we're going to set down a tradition, okay? A youth group tradition that says that we play a game, we sing a song, we do a Bible study, the youth pastor preaches at us, and then we go home. That is a traditional way of doing a worship service. And our leadership team, I think to their beautiful, extraordinary credit, set that down and they decided that they were gonna do it differently. And so instead, they set up a long table and they we've invited families from Kingdom Community and beyond to cook a homemade meal and bring that meal and they're gonna share that meal all around that table together. And as they share a meal, they're gonna have a family discussion like you and I would have around a kitchen table with our mom and dad. And that discussion will talk about the day. What are you going through during the day? And then we will bring up a proverb and we'll describe it. We'll say, this is, this is from, I mean, as far as I understand it, I haven't been a huge part of this. Um, there's some reasons for that. Um, but I've been listening to it and watching it through the windows and I think it's beautiful. Um, but they're gonna talk about the Bible and it's just gonna be one question. What do you think God has to say about A, B, and C? Or tell me, or, or here's a proverb. The proverb says, and it's this ancient wisdom, right? From this book called the Bible. And it says this, how does that apply to the things that are going on in your day, in your week, in your life? And there's a discussion about that. As I um, have been listening to the way these discussions have been going um, and to the way some of these kids with no religious background whatsoever are being now invited in and feel more and more like they're a part of this and now are pressing into all sorts of different things that are going on at, at 180. I'm just blown away, right? That if you're willing to set aside your tradition for the sake of the human being sitting across from you, right? Or your issue, right? Or whatever thing that you're super passionate about, um, your, whatever you're advocating for, if you can set that down for a minute and just be focused on the human being sitting across from you at the table, what are their needs, right? Maybe you're a Gentile and they're a Jew and they they need for you to like set something down. Like they're, maybe they're super religious. Maybe they're a right wing like crazy, right? And you have opinions uh, about... <laughs> whatever you have opinions about, right? Maybe for the sake of the human being sitting across from you, sitting across from you, you don't bring that opinion to the table first. Maybe just ask questions about them, right? What was so special about your life? Like what was so transformative in your younger life that 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 this religious tradition is so important to you? Tell me about I want to know more about you. Okay. I don't know what it looks like, but hopefully you get the drift of what I'm saying, right? What needs to be set down in order for the beautiful thing God is doing among us? 
to be picked up. Um, this is what's happening in Acts chapter 15, right? This is what it means um, <laughs> to be on the move uh, with God, both in the first century and in our world today. Um, God is on the move and he is going to stretch us like crazy, right? He's gonna challenge us. And the second we think we have God nailed down, the Holy Spirit is gonna blow things in an entirely different direction. And we are going to be like babies again, having to figure out how to walk. Um, to me, this is, we should expect nothing else from a God who is completely and utterly all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, and you and I, um, who are doing our very best uh, to understand him. So take from that what you will uh, today. I realize that there's not a huge like, okay, so this is what you now need to go and do. Um, that's for you to figure out uh, with your KC groups, uh, by yourself in a journal, maybe write down, what is God asking me to pick up? What is he asking me to set down? Is there a table that I need to invite others to? Um, is there something God is building that my that I'm holding on to something that's keeping me from that? Um, what is God speaking to you through this, right? What does it say about who he is? What does it say about who we are, okay? And what does it say about what I need to do? All right, I hope that uh, this is helpful for you. I hope at least there's some, some new learning going on uh, about the book of Acts. And we will be back in a couple weeks with Acts chapter 17, one of the most famous, I think, passages in all of scripture, uh, the story of Paul on Mars Hill at the Oropagus. So... Uh, and the, the altar to an unknown God. Um, mysterious, awesome, fun. I hope you come. Uh, join us on the first and third Sunday nights uh, at five o'clock at the 180 for Kingdom Community. We worship, uh, we sing some songs. Um, we hear about awesome things that are happening in our community. We have opportunities to participate, support those. Um, and then we do a little teaching just like this. I hope to see you there. We hope that you enjoyed this week's teaching. To connect with us and for more resources, you can find us on social media as KC Praxis or email us at kcpraxis at 180lodi.org.